ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. This is where the big boys play, huh? This is where the big boys play. Hey, folks, this is Justin Rosero of the Place to Be Podcast. You are listening to, I'd say, number uh, co-number one best podcast in the world, and that is, of course, where the big boys play. Parv, Chad, take it away, boys. Hello and welcome to Where the Big Boys Play. I'm here with Chad. How are you doing, Chad? Doing good. Uh, pretty cold morning here, but... Uh... Hanging in there. It's absolutely freezing. I have my uh, hands wrapped around a cup of tea, and I'm mainly using it like a hot water bottle or something to keep myself uh, from freezing. We're talking about Clash of the Champions 7 today, um, but before we do that, I'd like to thank Lee and uh, Jason Mann uh, once again for our, our WrestleWar shows. I thought they turned out pretty good. And um, I have been listening to uh, Jason Mann's WrestleSpective. Uh, you know, I think his re- recent shows are really good. Have you listened to any of those, Chad? Yeah, I've listened to, uh, I've kind of been going back in the archives. My work, um, last year when I started my job, I started my job about a year ago, and the IT department at my work was really kind of lax where I could go on any website, download stuff, do whatever. And then around the summer, they got, they went the complete other way around, and basically blocked every website and every downloading privilege we had and uh, finally now they've kind of came back to earth a little bit so I'm able to download and listen to shows while I'm at work so I've uh, listened to the Bash at the Beach 2000 show which uh, gave a lot of interesting perspective for a time that I know when we do eventually get there I kind of shudder the thought (laughs) of uh of working through that stuff, but but it may be good from a comedic standpoint. Um, and then I've, I've just been kind of going back through the archives, uh, listen to the Backlash 2001 show, uh, the Starcade 1990 show I dug out of the archives because I just watched that match on the 1990s yearbook. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that match is a complete atrocity that was even worse than I remembered, if that's possible. But, uh, yeah, he's, he's really, I like that, uh, he's kind of found a niche in, in all the main events that yeah. were pay-per-views and then really going deep on, uh, on those matches. Yeah, no, it's good. I mean, sometimes on this show we, we go like half hour on one match and things. Uh, but it, it, like, he'll have like an hour, an hour show on one match, um, often, right? Right. Um, Okay, so well, Jason uh, and of course and Lee, uh, welcome on the show anytime. Um, just before we get into Clash of the Champions here, I I have um, some interesting stuff from uh, Meltzer, just going from like the middle of May until the middle of June. Okay, so a month worth of uh, Observer stuff here, um, and quite a lot of stuff where uh, I'd like to know what your views are because. But we're coming up to the point where we're going to be giving out our end-of-decade awards, so a little bit of foreshadowing here. Um, May 22nd, uh, and WrestleWar 89 is being hailed as the best pay-per-view in the short history of wrestling pay-per-views. Um, you know, they did uh, one of the uh, Observer readership polls, and that went 291 thumbs up, 
to zero thumbs down for Wrestle War 89. Um, Meltzer says that the only other show uh, in terms of match quality that is even in contention is Starcade 88. Um, and then he, he kind of breaks it down by match quality and production values. He says overall package he'd, uh, he'd put Chaita Rumble in the mix as well. Um, and he said probably just for production WrestleMania 3 has got to be up there as well. Um, and then he gives us a, a ranking of his top 10 pay-per-views ever. Okay, uh, And bearing in mind he's writing in the middle of 1989 here. So I, I'll give you this uh, rundown, uh, Chad, and then you can tell me what you make of it, okay? Okay. Top rank. Number one, WrestleWar89. Number two, Tritan Rumble. Number three, WrestleMania 3. Number four, Starcade 88. Number five, The Wrestling Classic. Often forgotten show. Uh, number six is Survivor Series, the first one. Uh, number seven is... Uh, the Great American Bash from Baltimore. Number eight um, is Survivor Series 2. Number nine is WrestleMania 1. And number 10 is WrestleMania 2. <laughs> so what do you make of that? Uh, well, I mean, I think that kind of shows that we really have not seen, um, I think, a ton of great top-to-bottom pay-per-views yet. No. Uh, um, I mean, I, and you know, and even going to the WWF side, I don't think at this time they'd had uh, many top to bottom good pay per views either. No. But uh, I mean, I, I mean, I think the Wrestle War '89 that may be a little bit kind of it's so fresh on their minds mm-hmm. that people have kind of uh, over exaggerated it. I mean, again, I, I don't see if Steamboat Flair was not on that show, how anybody would say that was a, you know, a good show. That yeah. would have been an adequate show. And, I mean, it was, I, I mean, I thought it was a good show, but I thought that for sure that uh, Chi-Town Rumble had, you know, whether you think the Wrestle War 89 Flair Steamboat match or the Chi-Town Rumble match is better, they're definitely close. Um, and and Chi-Town Rumble had the much better undercard around it with Lex versus versus Barry Wyndham and then the Midnight Express tag as well. Was Starcade 88 actually the first pay-per-view? I'm trying to remember what the first pay-per-view was now. Starcade 87. Starcade 87 was, was the first, first one, right? Yeah, and then so really as far as NWA is concerned, we've only got Starcade 87, the Bunkhouse Stampede, uh, Great American Bash '88, Starcade '88, Chi Town Rumble, and now Wrestle War. So it, it's pretty slim pickings, right? I, I mean, it's almost too early for him to be doing this kind of top ten list. At this point. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're if you're sliding WrestleMania two into any top ten list, uh, as far as pay per views is concerned, that could tell you that there's there's not a whole lot of contenders. Yeah, I still think that they're very harsh on WrestleMania five. Another bit of news here in this 22nd of uh, May edition is that the World Championship Wrestling Show is going to go back to its traditional 6.05pm Saturday slot, um, which is a good move, he says, because it limits clashes with the Atlanta Braves games. Um, So, you know, there's going to be less jumping around in the schedule for wrestling. And then he has this little note, which I was greatly amused by, where he talks about 
group of rap singers. Did you see this? <laughs> rap singers, he calls them. Um, known as a, a group known as N.W.A. are releasing an album called Straight Outta Compton. You a fan of theirs, Chad? N.W.A.? Dr. Dre, uh, Ice Cube. I mean, I mean, I've listened certainly to uh, Straight Outta Compton. Um, I mean, as far as being a big fan of them, that was kind of before my time. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, when I first was a kid and started getting um, into rap music and listening to it, it was kind of the Coolio, yeah, Dr. Dre, two thousand one ilk. So uh, some good, some bad, but I, <laughs> I do like. When I do listen to uh, rap or hip hop at work, it's usually the early nineties. Yeah. Stuff, so. well, speaking of that era, he also mentions uh, that he, I mean, Meltzer is tickled by the fact there's also a rapper known as Slick Rick. <laughs> yeah. Um, who uh, he uh, it's not a bad album. Though. I can't remember. It's called The Art of Storytelling, I think. Um, so th- that's really all he's got in that particular newsletter, and then he moves on May twenty ninth. Incidentally, my brother's birthday and the date of our anniversary. I was married on May the 29th. <laughs> uh, but on this day, May the 29th, 1989, my brother would have been one years old. So, um, how old would you have been in uh, uh, at this? You'd have been one years old as well, right, Chad? I'd have been uh, two. Two. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, in this, th- there's not a lot of note here. There's, there's a lot of kind of WF related stuff in these newsletters. Um, but he does rank his bottom seven pay-per-views, so I thought we'd go through oh, okay. these as well. So the worst pay-per-view ever, in his view, uh, right down the bottom there, SummerSlam 88. Then he's got Bunkhouse Stampede 88, WrestleMania 4, Royal Rumble 89, Starcade 87, WrestleMania 5, and Super Clash 3. So... Any, uh, um, I mean... <laughs> That sounds, I guess, fair. I don't know. I think he definitely likes, uh, I mean, I, I definitely would not have, um, WrestleMania 5 on the worst list and WrestleMania 2 on the best list, or Starcade 87 even. I, I yeah. think with Starcade 87, he just got so pissed with the, uh, with both the Road Warriors match and he knew that the title was going back to Flair. It was obvious with the booking yeah. that people really kind of underrate that match, Flair versus Garvin. I mean, here, here, even in his comments I'm reading now, he says, Flair versus Garvin title change was anticlimactic, and the fans almost cheered Flair. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's all well and good, but that match was fucking great, you know, regardless of whether everybody knew it, you know. Yeah. Never, everybody knew that, Tons of matches would happen to finish, and they've still been very good matches in history. I I also think like WrestleMania one is a pretty brutal card if you if you watch it start to finish. There's a lot of like jobber matches and stuff on there. I mean, I think with that there may be some nostalgia in that yeah. it started, and and I actually like WrestleMania one pretty well only because it's uh it's really quick. Yeah, I think it's like two hours and fifteen minutes total running time, and the main event's not, you know, it's a fun match. So I, I, that to me helps it over something like even WrestleMania Five, yeah. which if you watch the pay per view version of WrestleMania Five, it is like almost you're you're all pushing four hours. 
And it, it's like, please, let's just get to the end like, of this. Half an hour of that is a Piper in the uh, Piper's Pit segment, right? Yeah, the Morton Downey Jr. <laughs> Morton Downey segment. Jr. <laughs> you got Run DMC. You got... Uh, is, is that the like, show with Honka Honka Love, or is that WrestleMania 6? That's remember. WrestleMania 6, which is also a long-ass <laughs> show, too. But uh, WrestleMania 5 also has, like, a Rockin' Robin singing the national anthem, which is terrible, and... The No Hold Bar, uh, I guess the trailer for No Holds Bar with Jesse losing his shit. There was just a lot of stuff, and and that we just named a lot of like time killer segments, and there's still I think like 14 matches in the show. So some editing would have went a long way there. I think Mel's has definitely picked the the right worst. Uh, NWA pay per view though, Bunkhouse Stampede eighty eight was absolutely that that would be. that would be probably my number one. I, I, I just can't think of... I, I mean, Flair versus Hawk was fine, and the actual stampede was not... I wouldn't say it was terrible. It was just really tough to kind of get any perspective of it. It just It's just an idea that didn't work. But that by far was... It, there was just... That was a class show before class show. I think it's the best description of it. Yeah, and there were definitely Clash shows that are better than that as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, to me, Clash 1's a better show than any pay-per-view we've seen, Yeah, um, personally. but I, I agree with that. Um, so, June the 6th, um, basically, uh, Meltzer's spending a lot of time here analyzing the WWF's acquisitions of Dusty Rhodes and Barry Windham. And he, he goes over the different kind of views, like, what does this mean for the NWA, basically? Um, and he says that there are two schools of thought. One is that um, it makes the NWA look minor league, that two of their major stars, are, you know, they couldn't stop them going to WWF. Um, the other point of view is that it really will have no effect, you know, that Dusty and Wyndham have gone, been gone long enough um, that it won't seem like these are two NWA guys going over there. Um, I don't know if you have any views on on that. Uh, um, I mean, I I, don't, I certainly don't think Wyndham leaving had much of effect at all. Uh, it really does. I mean, Dusty needed a break, so yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think uh, either one in the long run, looking back at it in the rearview mirror, had any damaging side effects, really. The, the biggest news uh, of the week, um, and this shows that it was a slow news week, uh, June the 6th, 1989, it was over the status of Mike Rotunda's contract. Titan have claimed to have signed him, even though he signed to a one-year deal with NWA. Um, and we know that he didn't go to Titan in 1990. So, um, Lex Luger won the US title back on the 22nd of May uh, at Bluefield, West Virginia, in a sellout show. Um, so Michael Hayes' uh, US run short-lived. Sid Vicious has debuted. Uh, we haven't seen him yet. Um, and here's quite a long uh, little story about Bob Orton, who was fired. Did you read about this, Chad? I'll, I'll, tell, you, I'll tell you about it now. Um, okay. Bob Orton was fired for refusing to job to the Midnight Express. So they were going to have a tag match, Butch Reed and Bob Orton versus the Midnight Express. And this was like the Midnight Express Express's comeback show, okay? And they wanted Orton to eat a pin, clean. Um, he was willing to do it, but only if he could have 
eaten up for a superplex uh, before the pin and then have Dick Murdoch run out from the back and trip uh, trip his leg to fall, to do that kind of finish, you know? Um, right. They wanted him to do a clean pin with no interference or anything. So what happened on the night of the show is that Bob Orton claimed that his plane was late and then pulled out of the match. He said that it's, like he couldn't make it on time. Um, so they subbed in somebody called the Raider. Uh, I have not heard of the Raider myself. Uh, to tag with Butch Reed, and obviously the Raider was willing to do a clean pin. Um, but then, Bob Orton actually turned up to the show, and he pulled an old Bruiser Brody trick, which is that he came out to do an interview to show the crowd that he was there, and so that the promoter couldn't say that he had no-showed. Um, and uh, they, to explain the fact that he wasn't in the match, they did have him brawl with uh, Dick Murdoch, but then they fired him after the show for uh, pulling that stunt. Fair enough, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think he was just sort of... Uh, I mean, I think that was fair to me. I, I do see this now, although Orton is talking and suing over it. Uh, you know, kind of give me a break with that. <laughs> I was kind of disappointed that, I had, from what I thought just now, thumbing through it, that he didn't really touch on why they decided to uh, take the U.S. belt off Hayes so quickly. No, it doesn't doesn't really go into that I mean, at all. It just, it just talks about Lex winning. Um, no, and also, in this Observer has an, a letter from Bruce Mitchell of uh, PW Torch fame, so uh, that's kind of interesting to read in retrospect. Yeah, I, I'm, during this time, Meltzer kind of, like, I get the impression that he takes his eye off NWA for a little bit because he just goes wild for no holds barred. Like, every newsletter around this time has got like two or three pages on no hold bars coverage. <laughs> like tracking like reviews and how it's doing at the box office and what it means for wrestling and all this sort of thing. So I get the impression that he cares more about this film than about other goings on at this time. Um, this is uh, seen most in the June 12th uh, edition where there's not a lot of news. He obsesses about NWA finances and ratings uh, and then talks a lot. And by a lot, I mean for about four pages uh, about No Holds Barred. Um, then in the June 19th um, edition, he talks more about No Holds Barred. Um, and <laughs> he notes, uh, to my amusement, that there's another film coming out called Fist Fighter. Uh, mm. There's a film that you've heard of? <laughs> I've never heard of Fist Fighter before. Fist Fighter with a small role for superstar Billy Graham. <laughs> Oh good. So I d- I did go on YouTube and uh, he was he was walking with the cane by now. So <laughs> well, I went on YouTube. I couldn't find the scene with Billy Graham in it. Um, okay. But this is kind of like a very cheesy kind of fighting film, like a kind of martial arts tournament that they have um, with like proper like eighties soundtrack. Um, and apparently, uh, I had a look to see what Billy Graham's role was, and he's listed as arm wrestler. Uh, so he must okay, have had that's some. Not a bad. Uh... <laughs> so there we are. Um, and but he's pretty way down the cast list there. Yeah, you know, I'm looking at the IMDb <laughs> page right now, and I've never heard of any of these people. <laughs> uh, Jorge Rivero is your top bill, and <laughs> IMDb doesn't even have a picture for him. So that kind of shows you the quality of this uh, flick here. 
The only, the only other thing I noted about the June 19th newsletter is that Randy Rose uh, has been tagging in a series of kind of job losses with uh, Ranger Ross. So he's kind of like the uh, the Virgil to Ranger Ross's Tito Santana there. They were, they were both at that indie show last night that I didn't go to. <laughs> Randy I Rose really went. <laughs> Randy Rose is still wrestling in the indies. It, well, it, 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 you'll you'll love this. It was it was they have this thing. I, I actually went to this show last year. It's for it's a benefit for the nightmare, um, nightmare Ted Allen who passed away, mm-hmm. and and the show was not bad. Like last year, Super Bowl star Bill Dundee and Robert Gibson were there, and they got in the ring and had a little square off, and it was fun uh, with a couple of good indie guys like Kyle Matthews was in there. But but the problem was it was a seven match show and they after every match would have an intermission or raffle off something so it was like a four hour show uh, it was ridiculous but in the course of this show they have what they call the parade of champions uh, mm-hmm. and that's what both Ranger Ross and Randy Rose were uh, were participating in was the parade of champions what's the parade of champions yes. What what is that? What they just it's 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 basically they just they just say here's you know they everybody just kind of walks out and then stands in the ring. What, what here, here, here's your listing, okay? Right, okay. Bullet Bob Armstrong, uh, Ron Simmons, George South, who we get a glimpse of in the <laughs> show too. Uh, Cowboy Bob Kelly, who I've never heard of. Scotty Riggs, Sergeant right. Buddy Lee Parker, uh, and then a lot of like kind of local dudes. There's like twelve local dudes that I've never heard. I mean, Nasty Critter number one, <laughs> you know, never heard of him. But then you get uh, Randy Rose, Ranger Ross, uh, Mr. Olympia, Jerry Stubbs. Oh, it's a reasonably big name. Yeah, uh, Bull Buchanan, who lives yeah. locally in the area. Uh, one of the interns, Bill Bowman, um, and then Scrappy McGowan. So it, it, it's, I mean, that they're kind of, and, and I don't quite understand why. Like, uh, like poor Mister Olympia. I mean, to me, he's a, one of the bigger names on this card. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, on the listing, he's behind Grizzly Boone, John Michaels, Greg Brown, Ben. Matt. I mean, I've never heard of these people. So. Well, I wonder how many major titles those guys have between them. I can I, only think, I like... I don't people... know. I mean, I, well, uh, Joyce Grable, she's also in there. Oh, Fifi the Maid. I, I know Mr. Olympia had a few, like, titles with Mid-South, and I know uh, Bull Buchanan was, like, a tag champ at one point, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, Bull is... I know Bull uh, lives locally in the area. He's from the area where, uh, where I live. So that's a pretty sad parade of champions, though. I mean, it, it, it's bad, and there's like 20 names. So, like I said last year, it. I mean, you're talking about 35, 40 minutes was taken up just for this, Wait, what? for them kind of walk get, out and wave their hand. Do you think they got paid for that? Like what, five bucks each or something? I don't know. That's what I wonder. I mean, because there's. I mean, there is a. Uh, I mean, I mean the the, uh, the show is billed as a, a non-profit show, 
Right. So, so I think that a lot of them just come for free just because of the nightmare. Yeah. They kind of just uh, do it to help out the family or whatever. I imagine, kinda, ra- I, imagine ra- thing. I imagine Ranger Ross is on a military pension anyway, right? Right. He doesn't need to worry. So, that's him. <laughs> um, June the 26th uh, show is actually the uh, review of the Clash of Champions, um, but my second page is missing. Yeah, mine too. So I don't have uh, I don't have the star ratings for anything apart from the main event. But I did. The only other thing I I noticed from this uh, is that Fist Fighters came out and did terrible business and disappeared without trace. <laughs> <laughs> so there we are. That was the uh, superstar Billy Graham in 1989. So let's get on to uh, Clash of the Champions then. Guts and glory is the tagline for this one. And uh, as things start out, um, Army Officer Carl Steiner uh, says that they're here to celebrate the 214th birthday of the U.S. Army. So they're in Fort Bragg, which is a military base, uh, right, Chad? In North yes. Car- in North Carolina. So they're in Flair country here. Um, commentators are Jim Ross and Bob Coddle, um, and they... They're basically hyping two things on this card. One is a kind of contenders match between the number 10 uh, contender in the rankings, Terry Funk, and the number one contender, Ricky Steamboat. That's going to be the headline uh, for this particular show. And they're also having a tag tournament for the vacant... um, If you remember, the Varsity Club was stripped of the titles last time out. Um, And now they're having a tournament to decide who's going to be the new world champions um, and by this point we're down to the semi-finals so tonight is going to be the semi-finals and the final so Ross and Coddle establish all of this before we get a national anthem um, so not a lot to say about the national anthem there unless uh, no. how how is that for you I know you're the, you're the national anthem purist uh, Chad how did, how did the uh, the boys that's do a, yeah solid version but uh, <laughs> nothing that had me getting teary eyed or anything, so we see uh we see wrestlers doing uh, various uh, military training. Uh Scott Steiner scaling like a wooden wall. Um and then we see Ranger Ross do the slide for life. <laughs> um so he comes down into kind of like a some muddy water and then Missy Hyatt does the same thing. Um Hyatt comes up to the camera and she says, I didn't break my nails and then Ranger Ross comes up behind her and says, and I didn't mess up my hair. Uh, which, <laughs> which I guess is a joke from Ranger Ross, but is also a glimpse into his identity crisis that he doesn't seem to understand what his gimmick is. <laughs> um, so, first match then, uh, is the, the first semi-final. Uh, num- the number eight seeds, the Dynamic Dudes, are taking on the Freebirds. Uh, we know Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy are two of them, but tonight they're unveiling their newest member. And who was that newest member, Chad? Um, the newest member would have been Jimmy Jam Garvin. Jimmy Garvin. And, uh, we haven't seen him in a while. We haven't seen him in a while, and he seems to have kind of moved into a, a, sep- a later stage of his career now from the last time we saw him. He's got, a, you know, he's visibly older and has a couple more pounds on it. I'd say. Would you agree with that? Right. Yeah. So, um, 
obviously a shine sequence from the dude to star. We get a double atomic drop, double back suplexed, uh, an arm drag, double elbow uh, drops. Um, the Freebirds take over on offense after a while with stomps. The fans, I notice, uh, keep throwing uh, rubbish at the ring uh, during this. And we probably should mention here, the fans for this show are basically army guys, right, Chad? What was the deal with the fans here? Yeah, I, I mean, I know in the last show, I think it was Jason that mentioned how many females were in the crowd for the rest mm-hmm. of War show. But this, uh, I mean, I would assume that the army guys were able to get into this show for free. Yeah. So uh, this, this is definitely a uh, testosterone-heavy crowd for this show, and where it's pretty much uh, younger 20 males. They are rowdy, I would say, and yeah. drunk. Would you agree? Right. Yeah. Um, and the, the, all throughout this match, they're throwing trash at the ring, basically, um, for no reason that I can see. But I can't see a crowd like that really getting behind the dudes, can you? Um, uh, no, yeah. I, 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 they, I mean, I will say that actually they did not turn on them as much as I kind of thought they were. Uh, and I think the Freebirds helped that out by constantly trying to rile them up. Yeah. So we get a shotgun by Garvin on Douglas, uh, body slam, uh, he throws him to the outside, uh, Hayes gets um, some offense in, and we get a kind of um, King of the Mountain segment here, where, they, where they're keeping the dudes on the outside, and uh, every time they try to get back in, they um, knee them back out. Um, we get hot tagged Johnny Ace, who gets a backdrop in, um, double noggin knocker, we get a double drop uh, kick on Hayes. Double backdrop on Garvin, and uh, then Douglas uh, pulls, uh, rolls Garvin up. Um, but Hay sneaks in and uh, gets a DDT in, and Garvin uh, covers for three. Quite a clean win for uh, Freebirds here. Chad, this uh, was a pretty quick match. Uh, at the very beginning, uh, the first opening segment with the dudes being the House of Fire. Shane Douglas was really clumsy uh, in that first, the first like 30 seconds of the match. He kind of fell and was slipping around and looked really bad. The match I didn't think overall was bad uh, and it was energetic so as far as an opener to kind of get the crowd going, I, didn't, I think it served its purpose but it's certainly nothing memorable so no, it I was mean- okay. My feeling watching the dynamic dudes uh, here is that they're both quite green looking. Was that fair? I mean, how old were these guys at this point? Yeah, um, well, I mean, one thing one thing that we haven't really talked about, I know, is I'm always amazed at Michael Hayes' age. So while I looked at that, like, he was only 30 years old at this point. Right. And it feels, and it feels like he'd been around for forever. And, uh, like, uh, you know, Jimmy Garvin, I think, was 36. Right. But uh, Shane Douglas at this time would have been 20, uh, 24. Right. So, so yeah, I mean, yeah, younger, younger guy. And let me look up Johnny Ace real quick. Uh, well, um, apparently there's multiple Johnny Ace. Because <laughs> I got 1929. <laughs> oh, there's a Johnny Ace from 1929, right? Yeah, I do not think he was born in 1929. Uh, 1965, so he'd actually been uh, even younger. He'd have been 23 at this point, almost 24. 
So he's the younger of the two. I saw Johnny Ace in that old Japan match that you uh, had us watch recently, Chad. That uh, six-man tag from '94. Yeah. And he he uh, he seems to become older and more experienced very quickly, because he um he looks significantly different from how he looks in this match. Even in the '90 stuff. Uh, the the September 1990 stuff where he's teaming with Kabashi, he's a looks a lot older and b uh he's he's a lot more polished in the ring even by then. I mean I I, I think I mean I think the thing with Johnny is he's all he, even as a worker he was always kind of an energetic worker, yeah. uh, which kind of made him in some ways sloppy. Mm-hmm. And he never reached the highs of uh, some of the other foreign workers in all Japan, like you know, as Steve Williams, Dan Hansen. No. So that's kind of been a knock against him. But uh, he's always a worker. I've kind of, I mean, I've, I would always classify him as definitely serviceable and at many points good. The, the, the thing that surprises me most about Johnny Ace is that he ends up becoming uh, like the booker for WCW, like way, way down the line towards the end. Um, which, uh, well, we'll see in a couple of years, I guess. But uh, I always thought he was a really random guy to, to get that role later on. Right. And then, uh, I mean, the other part is how he became essentially the, you know, a senior vice president, too. So Yeah. I mean, uh, it's... Uh, in WCW, right? Well, in WWF, is mainly his his big run. He was kind of... Uh, the senior vice president of talent operations for an 11 year period. Wow. So, so he was the guy that hired and fired people and what all if that. They could say like he's a, he's a naughty's version of Terry Taylor or something like that, you know? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, not a lot to say about this first match really. Um, it was really establishing Jimmy Garvin as the new Freebird. That was the right. angle here and giving him a clean pin. Um, to say, you know, this team is going to be, be a major force now. So they're through to the final. Um, and our second match, and <laughs> here we go. Um, so it's Ranger Ross, uh, who gets, uh, <laughs> uh, quite the ovation here, uh, from the army crowd. Um, but his opponent is the terrorist. Um, why don't you talk us through uh, what the terrorist is wearing here, Chad? He is wearing. Um, I mean, I, I, I guess the terrorist had some forethought because he is wearing uh, essentially some kind of Sergeant Slaughter type garb that he'll be wearing at the end of 1990. Uh, he's in camo pants. Uh, he has a camo jacket on, and then under that, a different uh, shade of camouflage shirt on uh, with a mask. So it's uh, quite an interesting uh, kind of route to take for somebody named the terrorist. Um, now, did you notice that this kind of mask he had on seemed to have like a, like a kind of Japanese pattern on it, as if he'd borrowed it from the Great Muto or something? Yeah, yeah. I, this I would assume this was lying around backstage, <laughs> and they just threw it on. It, uh, it's almost like a Kendo Nagasaki mask, basically. Um, okay. So, who is the mysterious terrorist? Well, if if, if you do not know <laughs> who a masked wrestler is in 1989, NWA, uh, just guess Jack Victory. 
and chances are you are correct because it is again Jack Victory uh, in his third mass gimmick within a year <laughs> as he's also been the Russian assassin number two and the blackmailer while still also being, you know, Jack Victory, just playing Jack Victory on shows as well. <laughs> what I love about these characters is that they have these names and they make you think of backstory. They obviously have no backstory or history or it's, right. it's not hinted at or anything, but like, the idea of this guy wearing like a pair of like oven mitts, <laughs> like what the hell was he? Uh... Anyway, uh, this was something to... Uh, pop the uh, army crowd here with Ranger Ross coming out um, to, to much fanfare. Probably the biggest reaction that Ranger Ross would ever get anywhere. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I will say that in looking at the storied career of Ranger Ross, uh, this is probably his peak because he does get a kind of hero's welcome coming out. The terrorist attacks Ross to start, um, but he gets a flying, um, flying forearm uh, we get a body slam by Ross, an elbow drop, a flying clothesline, karate chop, and then what Jim Ross uh, calls a combat kick. And I've just written yeah. here, here, Jesus H. Christ, what did I just see? <laughs> yeah, the, the comeback kick, the combat kick was uh, very ugly looking. I mean, I mean, this match went a minute, so there's nothing to analyze here. It was not... not Good, but not bad, because it was only a minute. Uh, one thing that I did enjoy was during the match, Ross said he'd like to be home, drinking a Coors Light and eating a Domino's pizza, which, uh, <laughs> if you if you notice Jim Ross's physical stature as we go along, that's probably a pretty accurate uh, and astute evaluation of what most of his nights at home consist of, is uh, drinking a Coors Light and eating a Domino's pizza. Jim Ross is pretty lardy at this point. In 1989, he's uh, yep. probably the biggest he would be for a while, I'd say. Yeah, I think he drops down a little bit in 1990, and then of course, when like I'm, I do remember in like 93 when he went to uh, to WWF and he's in that toga, he didn't look you know terrible, not like here. So yeah, he's got like a big. Uh, he's almost getting up to Joe uh, Pedicino levels with his. Travels. I don't know if I'd go that far. <laughs> <laughs> we got a Row Warriors package now. Um, to the strains of Iron Man. Not a lot to say about the Row Warriors package, although I was uh, hoping to get some insight from Meltzer as to um, why they weren't involved in this tag tournament. Had they been knocked out already? I mean, yeah, they uh, they actually lost in the first round to the Freebirds. I don't know how, but uh, they did lose to them. Uh, in the Dynamic Dudes beat Jack Victory and Rip Morgan. So, <laughs> <laughs> Jack, Jack Victory's like got four slots on the roster. Yeah, uh, it, it it does at least seem that they are kind of souring on Jack Victory finally, though, because I mean, honestly, I think up to the blackmailer, they really, I think, had high hopes for him. You could tell in the way they protected him in the Russian assassin tags and. Stuff like that. And, and, and uh, another thing that we haven't really touched on, I guess we kind of can now that we see victory. I don't know if we see him again. I guess I need to look to see if there's any mass matches coming up. But uh, uh, it seems like we're pretty much through with Paul Jones, too, by this point. Yeah, he's uh, he's gone, right? I mean, he's yeah. 
like quietly disappeared, and I, right. I I don't recall Meltzer saying that he's gone or anything. Um, so obviously not on anybody's radar in mid '89 here. When was the last time we saw the Russian assassins? Uh, I think it was the Shy Town Rumble. Right. Okay. So. No, I I think with the new booking committee, those guys have been like Paul Jones is gone. He's like an overhang of the Crockett years, right? Right. Um, and uh, no matter what Johnny Sorrow or anyone else says, Paul Jones sucks. And I'm not going to... I don't think I'm going to change my view on that now. Do you think the same? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan, but... Uh... So, now we go... Um, I actually think that Gary Hart has taken Paul Jones' place on the card, by the way. That's yeah, that that seems appropriate, yeah. So, so speaking of him, um, we have now what is called a dragon chai contest, dragon chi, dragon right. chi contest between the, the great Muta and Trent Knight. So, who's this dude, Trent Knight? I never, never heard of him. Yeah, never be- heard of him. Uh, don't think I'll ever hear of him again. <laughs> I would assume just a crooked jobber. Um, so Gary Hart gets on the mic here and says that the great Muta thinks that these dudes, um, Trent Knight's got like a kind of job a partner here as well. Uh, what's his name? Something Justice? Yeah, Mike Justice. Mike Justice. Um, and he, he says that these guys are below him and he, he uh, he calls them, uh, Gaijins. Uh, that these guys are Gaijins and he wants to face Sting and Luger and other people of that caliber. Um, then Eddie Gilbert kind of tries to sneak attack Muta um, with fire, but catches Trent Knight instead. So, any thoughts on this little segment? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it was a pretty good segment, I think, in uh, in concept. Uh, it didn't work out great. I don't think the uh, fireball, the kind of paper that Eddie used, it didn't come off as looking perfect. Um, which is kind of surprising because uh, Eddie Gilbert, obviously, with his moniker, the hot stuff, is usually great with the fireballs and looking really cool and them kind of coming out of nowhere and getting some contact on the face. Uh, but the, I, th- I think they've really done a pretty good job in establishing Muda as a threat um, and kind of as a very smartly foreign uh, person because here he just sort of casually... Uh, steps out of the way and puts Knight in front of him and then scurries off. So I thought that was pretty interesting how they portrayed him. Yeah, I, I feel like we're ready for a proper feud for him now, though. Like they, they've, they've kind of slow-burned his, his build here. Yeah, this is, uh, I guess this is, what, about three shows where he's had kind of a featured segment. So. Yeah, but he, we, we haven't had any, like, I'm waiting for him to feud with people like Sting. At this point, right. Um, so the next uh, match here, George South and was it Timber J? Cougar. Cougar J. A, a worker that you're familiar with? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, Another one I've never seen before. Uh, probably. I mean, I'm, I'm sure if you uh, if you if you watch the TV, maybe around this time, these are the equivalent of like your Barry Horowitz. Iron Mike Sharps, maybe. So, but uh, I, I've never heard of these guys. George South is like a kind of journeyman WF jobber. I've seen him 
uh, in quite a few matches, I think. Um, yeah. But uh, Cougar J, um, less familiar with his uh, body of work. <laughs> um, and their opponents here, uh, wait for it, are the Ding Dongs. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> there are two guys uh, in like orange or yellow jumpsuits, um, if you've never seen them, with bells on them, and pictures of bells on them. Uh, so as they walk, you can kind of hear, like, bells jingling. Um, and they have odd movements. Um, what were you thinking when the ding-dongs were walking out here? <laughs> this is, um... I mean, this this is a gimmick that I've kind of tried as tough as I can to block out of my memory. <laughs> and, and, and I wasn't watching it this time. Uh, I, you know, I was too young, so... As far as uh, I, I was actually watching at the gobbledygooker stage, so I do yeah. have some vague memories of that. Um, but as, you know, watching this back now, you really see how stupid and how this was one of the awful, uh, the worst gimmicks that's ever been saddled to a tag team. I mean, I don't know who thought this was a good idea, but well, uh, it, it was a disaster. It was Jim Hurd. This was uh, notoriously one of Jim Hurd's big ideas. Uh, yeah. The, the, f the first of many that he'd have. Um, this this one was, I mean, as, as we go in the shows, uh, as we go into the shows into 1990, I think you'll see that, uh, well, I don't think Hurd was uh, helpful in any way with some of the awful ideas. I do blame a lot of that on uh, Ole Anderson as the booker. Yeah. Two in 1990. But, uh, yeah, if, if this was something he was spearheading, uh, somebody should have took him to the side and explained that this would have just been an annoying thing. One thing about the Ding Dongs, too, is uh, it's portrayed by Jim Evans and Richard Salt Sartan, right. who I've never heard of those guys either. And even usually in these terrible gimmicks, it's somebody that you're kind of familiar with. Again, like Hector Guerrero. Yeah, uh, as the gobbledygooker, somebody that you kind of know, but these are two like no names that I guess once this was over with, we never heard from them again. Um, the thing about the booking committee at this time is that you obviously got Flair on there, you've got Jim Ross on there, uh, you've got Eddie Gilbert on there, who's meant to have quite a good wrestling mind, and you've got Jim Hurd on there. So it's a kind of curious mix of people with very different philosophies, you know. I mean, um. Flair obviously got like Flair obviously goes for kind of wrestling legitimacy in some sort of way. Um, we know that Jim, we know that Jim Ross's tastes tend towards basically mid south style, um, and clearly like Jim Hurd is bringing in a this like ridiculous cartoony yeah. element here, but he's only one of a number of guys. So like this car is a curious mix of all of these different styles all jumbled together. I don't know if it's a good thing or not. <laughs> right. Um, so as this match starts, um, uh, one of the ding-dongs has got a bell uh, in the turnbuckle, and he keeps dancing about and ringing the bell on the side of the ring. So he's kind of like doing odd prancy movements and ringing this uh, bell, which is very distracting. Yes. The ding-dongs are on top to start. Dong, I think it is, uh, does like a flip into the ring. And uh, they have some double team spots. There's a tag to George South. 
Ding gets a Fez press, uh, an arm drag by Dong, then another big arm drag by Dong. Uh, and I'm thinking at this point that Dong isn't like, like if you strip away all the nonsense, Dong doesn't look bad as a worker. <laughs> I think he's the work rate side of the Ding Dongs. <laughs> uh, yeah. George South gets a, a body slam in. Then we get a belly to belly suplex by Dong, uh, and a knee drop from the top rope by Ding for the three count. And I've just, my one note here is that I don't think these guys are awful. Like, once you strip everything else away, the gimmick and, like, they didn't look terrible, you know? They looked at least as good as Jack Victory to me. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I did write a note, um, and there's not much to this match either. The bales kept falling off. Uh, I did write a note that it said that the, the Ding Dongs did have some good looking moves that you ran through. They had some botches. Uh, two sprinkled in that that could have been a result of having bales wrapped around your ankles and everywhere else. Uh, could have been pretty uncomfortable. But uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't think they like. I didn't, I didn't think this was a terrible match from the actual action standpoint. But just when you uh, when you surround everything else from the bell ringing, which was annoying as shit, to the bells falling off. To the gimmick as a whole, I think it's pretty clear that this one was uh, completely stupid and not going to be hanging around for very long. So, so what is the gimmick meant to be? Like, what these guys are? I, I, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't. <laughs> what they just like people who are obsessed with bells? I, I, I can't even. I mean, it's so comically bad. It's, it's. I mean, it's almost like you could pick any supply or household and almost, I mean, like the pencils or the, and I, I don't know, the erasers. Oh. And, and I, I, it's awful. I'm, I'm, what about a tag team called the Knee Nors? One of them is called Knee, one of them is called Nor, and they have like little sirens on their head, like police sirens. Yeah, it's <laughs> just it's so, so bad. <laughs> We have a message now from Congressman Charlie Rose, who is proud of the U.S. Army. He says that um, uh, we should never take our liberty for granted. Did uh, this make you feel proud to be American, uh, Chad? No, this is okay. They did sprinkle in kind of the some kind of dignitaries throughout this match, which or throughout the show, which I thought was kind of a nice. Nice touch to go to the overall theme and the fact that it was Flag Day, which is on the spectrum of holidays in the U.S. is at the very low level, but still. Oh, is it? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Flag Day is. Uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm a government worker, so if there's a holiday that I can get off, uh, I, I'll be. You know, they'll they'll give it to me off, and we do not get Flag Day off, so. So there weren't a huge amount of people celebrating the 214th birthday of the U.S. Army. I mean, it's usually just like an antidote. So next match, it's not. It's not it's, I mean, it's not like your family will get together right. on Flag Day. Okay, you just right. <laughs> well, they they certainly made enough of a deal of it on this show. Yeah, this is probably the biggest uh, celebration for Flag Day event I've ever. <laughs> seen in, a, in the uh, in the entertainment spectrum. So 
this is the uh, next match now we get the Midnight Express versus the Samoan SWAT team. So the Midnights are back with Jim Cornette. They're still as faces and they have uh, all new robes here. Looking pretty kick-ass. Um, against the Samoan SWAT team, still managed by poorly dangerously. And this is our second uh, semi-final, right? Yes. So, um, as this match starts, a fan jumps on the apron. Um, and Cornette is uh, on the mic and he kind of like sort of no-sells this fan on the apron. He just says something like, um, you know, the Midnight Express could make your life or something. But did you catch what he said to him? Yeah, it was, it was kind of the equivalent of like, instead of killing you, uh, we're just going to let you walk it off or something like that, which I, I mean, I guess just means like they're going to throw him into the drunk tank. Um, so. Yeah, just a, an example of how rowdy this, you know, like people were steaming in this room, basically, um, both in terms of being full of alcohol and in terms of being very hot. Um, apparently there was no air conditioning in this place, um, which uh, I think maybe added to this kind of crazy atmosphere uh, yeah. in the ground. Cornette and Dangerously have some uh, words for each other as we start here. Um, Lane is with Fatu. Uh, we get a drop, a drop, drop toehold uh, and an elbow uh, drop. Eaton takes over with a neck breaker. Uh, we get some nice double teaming uh, by the Midnights here. We get a bulldog by Eaton. The Samoans take over on offense. Fatu gets a snap suplex on the outside of the ring. He slams Eaton uh, to the mat. Uh, and this is a reasonably good uh, stretch sequence uh, here for uh, the Samoans. Finally, we get a hot tag to Lane, who gets a side Russian leg sweep. Uh, the ref goes down, and then the Row Warriors hit the ring and lay out the Samoans to give the Midnights the win. Which suggests to me that the Samoans may have interfered in their first round match. Um, because it was suggested that they were getting revenge on them for some reason. Alright, that's, that's a good possibility. Any thoughts on this? This is uh, reasonably short for Midnight's Yeah, Samoans. Re reasonably short, condensed. Uh, it was okay, but didn't have a chance to develop into anything much than that. Um, Paulie at this show is dressed like Tony Montana. Uh, he, <laughs> he, he looks like a, a Cuban gangster uh, that just came out of nowhere. He's wearing this like neon blue shirt and uh, jacket leisure suit around it. Uh, the, the actual match, I thought the action was fine, but again, just really too condensed. So, so definitely not as good as our previous match we saw. One of the things I noticed in the uh, Observer kind of readers' letters is that there's quite a lot of people debating about if uh, Paulie Dangerously is a manager on Jim Cornette's level. Or well, at this point, any thoughts on that? I mean, I think Paulie, uh, even at this point, was uh, was doing some good work at riling up the crowd, being annoying, which is something that he does best. So, I mean, Jeff Cornette's probably one of the top two or three managers of all time. So, even if he's not quite on that level, I think, I mean, that's a very high standard to try to match. So, I, I think as far as... I mean, I will say I've enjoyed what we've seen from Paulie more than anything we've seen from either Gary Hart, Paul Jones, uh, managers like that. So, yeah. 
Okay, uh, not a lot to uh, not a lot to say here. The, the Midnight's basically are just picking up where they left off here. Right. Um, even though they've been away for a couple of months, and uh, yeah, they look pretty good when they were on top. I thought, and uh, yeah, not a lot. Else to, the only other thing I'll say is that it was a bit strange that the Row Warriors were so low key on this particular card. Reduced to just like one run in. Um, yeah, and I, th- I think uh, I mean honestly, from here to the the next year, the the Road Warriors are not even until they go to the WWF. The Road Warriors are not a uh, you know they certainly don't feel as integral to the tag division as a whole as they had before. No, they they kind of feel like they're getting phased down a little bit. I mean they'll be on shows and in angles and stuff, but. Uh, not that kind of semi-main event spot that we'd seen them in before. No. It's kind of no man's land for Road Warriors for a few months here. Right. Next match, and this looks a, a little bit unusual on paper, uh, in hindsight. Terry Gordy versus Dr. Death Steve Williams. Um, and there's a little bit of an angle here um, that we're told about in commentary that Gordy uh, suckered uh, Williams when they were in Japan with a 2x4. So I, I guess they were kind of had some random tag match in Japan where Gordy nailed uh, Williams with a with a 2x4 and the suggestion was that he'd been paid off by Kevin Sullivan to do this. So Steve Williams is a face now and he's wearing bright yellow trunks. We get a football tackle by Williams to start. And then he goes for a clothesline, uh, catches a boot. Gordy gets a big uh, clothesline uh, on the turnbuckle. Ross mentions their Mid-South UWF feud. Uh, Williams uh, unloads eight or nine uh, rights on Gordy. Then he gets an uppercut in and a headbutt. Gordy uh, goes in for a waist lock and then he gets a back suplex in. A snap mare, reverse chin lock and a body slam. Now William gets uh, one of his own. In fact, he gets two body slams of his own in. Um, action goes outside with slugs back and forth. We go back in for a flying crossbody by Williams and a drop kick. It goes back outside and then down the aisle with double count out and a very lame finish. So, some good stuff here, Chad, but uh, quite a short match. Yeah, this is another six-minute match. I, I do wonder if that ankle actually happened in Japan, or if that was Ross just kind of spitting out shit. Yeah, I wondered about uh, that as well. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I would kind of doubt it, to be honest. Um, and also, when I get done talking about this match, I'm kind of interested in your thoughts on Gordy, because I, I do see him, to me, being in kind of that Ricky Steamboat territory again, where... I do think he's a, a great worker. I mean, I wouldn't. I would say I'd pick Steamboat over him, but I think Gordy's a great worker. But the more kind of '80s stuff you watch and revisit, there just doesn't seem to me be as many uh, kind of hidden gems with Gordy, mm. and even matches that you really anticipate. Like I, I was really anticipating that match, him versus Jumbo, on the All Japan set, and that was uh, one of my. Uh, bottom 15 matches this match kind of filled that kind of uh, theory as well because the shots and exchanges were really good 
But uh, but in a six minute match, there's really no excuse to have kind of a chin lock, and there was some slow sequences for uh, for a couple of minutes within a six minute match, and then you also have a shit finish to top it off. So the match was uh, some good, some bad overall, decent. Now Terry Gordy is a guy to me where somebody would would have to come along and say, watch these twenty matches of his that are really good because. For me, I've seen quite a lot of Terry Gordy now over the years, and he's never really done anything to make me think that he's a worker in the bracket that he's talked about, typically. Like, he, he's talked about as being a guy up in that conversation. Uh, maybe not in the greatest of all time conversation, but, like, in the next tier down. Um, and I don't... From what I've seen, I don't see how he fits in there. I don't see what he's doing that is so much above a lot of other workers. Um, so, like, from what we've seen on the shows, uh, for example, um, I'd put Ronnie Garvin ahead of him uh, at the moment, uh, which would, which, on, you know, in the general uh, scheme of things, seems like a really odd thing to say. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that, uh, more people are kind of coming around to that theory for Gordy. I, I mean, I, 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 I do think that maybe 10 years ago he'd have a lot more proponents than now. Hmm. Uh, but even now, I do think... I mean, in the Texas stuff that I've seen, he's been he's been really, really good. Uh, the, the match with Killer Khan, the death match with Killer Khan, is a great match. And he's had great matches, but I just do think a lot of times, like when he took that chin lock in this match, to me that just seemed lazy. And I think sometimes uh, with his matches too, like I said, that you really anticipate, they come way under expectations, which is unfortunate. I will say on this talking point that Steve Williams is a hell of a lot better now than he was like a year previous. Um I think he's really improved in the in the time that we've seen him in. Yeah, he looked he looked good here. So there's a big bullshit chant from the crowd. Did you hear that? Yeah, yeah, they oh. were not pleased. I mean, this was a terrible finish. It was they basically just ran to the back and the cat counted out, and then Williams, after the bell's done wrong, uh, comes charging back into the ring. And then he raises his hands like an idiot when the referee is already heading to the back. So obviously you did not win because one, the bell's wrong. Two, Capetta's announced that it was a double count out. And three, the referee's already high telling it to the back. So that did him no favors yeah, either. I also, I mean, not only was it, bad, it was a bad finish, but I thought it was poorly executed. So for example, rather than brawling to the back, um, we, we get a glimpse of Terry Gordy kind of casually walking out. Did you see that? Yeah, they uh, they did sort of just like stroll to the back. It it just seems like they said I'm done with this and kind of headed on back. That was a, it was it was a bad finish all round. I thought. Um, so very, yeah. I mean, on paper this looks like a dream match, right? So very disappointing compared to what you'd expect. Right. Mike Justice now making his second appearance against <laughs> from the State Hospital with Teddy Long. Norman the Lunatic. So, why don't you tell us uh, what we're looking at here, Norman the Lunatic? Um, 
I mean, Norman, the lunatic, he's a guy that kind of, uh, he, he, he's mainly sort of got his name, I guess, in the, in the, uh, stampede area. Uh, so he, he sort of had a big, uh, big, pretty big run in Stampede as Klondike Mike and all that. And then he sort of came here as Norman the Lunatic. And then he would later come on, uh, go on to be Bastion Booger, who is, uh, what I sort of remember him as. So kind of a guy that got, you know, a few chances, I guess, throughout his career. And had a decent career, but, uh, somebody that I don't think ever really made much of a lasting, uh, impression. So he, he's a big fat guy. And he's yeah, like, big, kind of, I mean, he honestly he looks like somebody that should have been like a moon dog. Yeah, he's got like a grizzly beard and he's wearing, uh, hospital scrubs basically with a, uh, 502 across his chest. Um, so it, as if he's come from a mental asylum here, and uh, he has a, um, a seat belt wrapped around his head. <laughs> um, as things start off here, he clubs Justice, then he clotheslines him, then he splashes him in the corner, and that's it. Three count in 47 seconds. Um, and then Teddy Long has to persuade him to leave. And he's strapped to a stretcher and carried out to the back. Yeah. I have a problem with this gimmick, Chad, as you... I'm not surprised by that. Um, it, uh, is, it, it's a pretty short-lived gimmick because we're in June of 89. I, I cannot recall any Norman after maybe um, April, May of 90. So it's 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 about a year run for Norman. Yeah, I I don't I thought for nineteen eighty nine this is in pretty bad taste. Um we'd already had George Steele, and I think George Steele was getting to be very dated by eighty six. So to have this in nineteen eighty nine now, I, I mean the the only good thing I'll say is that the music his theme music is genuinely menacing. It's like the kind of yeah, do you remember Doink had the kind of happy tune and then it, where it goes dark? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like he had the kind of psycho music here, which did make him seem quite menacing. Um, but I don't like the, I don't like this idea of, you know, somebody with a mental disability being exploited here. Um, something, something unsavory about it. And I didn't like the way that like guys in the crowd were shouting at him and stuff. Like, this wouldn't happen today, I don't think. <laughs> and that's no. probably one of the ways that things have changed for the better. Well, I, guess, I mean, I guess the last person kind of that essentially had, uh, you know, or I guess you'd call like a mental deficiency type gimmick would have been Eugene. I can't think of any person uh, right off the top of my head after Eugene, but I mean, he was still hanging around in like 2006, so... We're not that far removed. Yeah, but at least he was a baby face, right? From a, from uh, yeah, for most of it, he was a baby face, yeah. So, um, in fact, th- am I remembering this wrong, but was there some sort of angle where he was just putting it on? Was it, like, revealed, like, didn't he have a heel bit where 
was revealed that mm-hmm. in fact he wasn't. I, I don't. I don't even remember that. I, d- I don't. Maybe it's possible at the tail end of his run. I remember him being buddies with The Rock. So I can't really remember much about him. Um, so Jim Ross is with the Freebirds, and uh, Jimmy Garvin says there are going to be some uh, new rules around here. And the main thing I noticed about this Freebirds uh, promo is that they're wearing very cheap-looking shades. They're almost like the kind of free shades that you get with a McDonald's meal. Did you... Uh, not very not very cool-looking shades with the Freebirds here. No. And uh, Hayes didn't even get to talk, which was odd. No. Uh, he kind of stood at the back and didn't, didn't say anything. Now, do you think this is already the point now where the Freebirds are just in no way cool? Well, not as bad as it would get, but I do think they're definitely on the uh, on the downswing. I mean, I think uh, ninety one is kind of rock bottom. Uh, Ninety had some bad moments, mostly bad moments, but uh, even now, it's just them adding Garvin. Garvin looks like a middle aged man that needs to kind of get on with his life. Uh, and not be trying to act like this flamboyant, sexy young guy that he's sort of trying to portray himself as. Do you know if it was explained anywhere where Buddy Roberts went? I mean, did they just say, oh, he's retired now and we're getting a new Freebird in? Or Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Because uh, he does make a little uh, return back in, uh, I think, 1990. So, yeah. Kinda. I don't he, know where he ended up. Last time we saw him, though, he was looking pretty old himself. So yeah, well, he he looked fifty when he was twenty-five. So <laughs> we, we get a video package of Flying Brian now, uh, quite a homoerotic one with scenes of him working out. So did this uh, get you excited to see Flying Brian, Chad? Um, I mean, I mean, I, I definitely like uh, Flying Brian. As a worker, I thought this was a okay video to introduce him. Uh, certainly, kind of portraying him as a uh, kind of white meat, young heartthrob type uh, baby face. So. Next match now, and uh, we get the Varsity Club captain Mike Rotunda. Now he's definitely got this captain moniker, although he's not dressing like a captain at this point. Right. Um, and the coach, Kevin Sullivan, versus the Steiner Brothers with Missy Hyatt. Um, so, Steiner Brothers together now. Um, and is this our first look at Scott? Have we seen Scott Steiner work before? Not work. He appeared, um, but we haven't seen him work. And he's, uh, he's wearing trunks, which looked weird. Instead of the singlet, you're kind of more familiar with him. So I, I'm particularly interested, but whenever we see the signers, I'm interested to see if your opinion of, of them will change in any way, because um, you're very down on them, right, on both Rick and Scott. Um, I, I'd say more Rick. I, I mean, I don't want to say that... I, I mean, I think, again, that when I when I spout these opinions, it's not that I... I'm, it's just... Some people would say the Steiners are one of the greatest tag teams of all time. And I, I would I would absolutely shoot that down. I have not liked a lot of their Japanese stuff uh, from the mid-90s on. I don't think uh, their WWF run was very good. 
and uh, I, I didn't really like a lot of their kind of top end uh, NWA matches as much as most. Like I know for a fact, uh, like the Super Brawl one match, I'm not crazy about it. I mean, it's it's a good match, but uh, not mm. something I'm really high on. So it's not that I. And I, and then Rick is just somebody with his mannerisms in the match that annoys me. I'm actually a pretty big fan of Scott once he became a singles wrestler. Uh, but, but just as a tag team sort of as a baseline for them, I, I would say they were, uh, overall, I mean, I think they were good, but just not one of the better teams. So the th- night, you know that 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 view there, Chad, is pretty much the reverse of the kind of received view of Scott Steiner. I mean, the the common wisdom is that Scott Steiner was good as a tag worker, and then bad when he was a singles guy. But you're, mm, I don't you're, know about that. I disagree no? with that. Like in the '98 through 2000, I mean, obviously when he came back to WWE in 2003, he was uh, the shits. But uh, I I think '98 uh, to 2000, a lot of people liked Steiner. Pop a pump. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah. we'll we'll see when we get there. When he was, <laughs> um, Jim. Uh, so what happens here is that Scott is working over Kevin Sullivan to start in the in the shine sequence, and Jim Ross keeps talking about wanting a cause light, <laughs> and he mentions it quite a few times. Yeah, um, they must have had. Um, well, I mean, the cause light did have. They were written on the turnbuckles, so I guess they were a pretty high sponsor at this point. We get a power slam by Scott Steiner, and both teams tag now, so we get a Rick Steiner versus Mike Rotunda scenario. Um, we get an arm drag and a clothesline, um, and then a headlock by Rick Steiner, a belly to belly suplex by Rotunda uh, to gain control. Then we get a tag to uh, Sullivan, uh, who immediately eats a clothesline, and then a very cheesy uh, plug from Jim Ross. Um, as he he mentions that uh, <laughs> he mentions that Rick Steiner is reminiscent, or he meant he somehow finds a way to mention Charles Bronson, and then he uh, segues from the mentioning of Charles Bronson into the fact that Death Wish Two is showing on TBS tonight. Um, so that was a kind of bit of snake oil salesman from Jim Ross there, just to right. just to mention what was coming up later. I should mention the the Michael Winner, the director of Death Wish, died recently. So um, Scott uh, Steiner comes in and uh, gets Rotunda up for a suplex, uh, but then Rotunda reverses, and this was an interesting little spot here. He gets him up for a suplex and then drops him on the announce table from the suplex position. Sullivan gets a boot uh, into Scott Steiner's face, um, and then we get a double arm suplex from Rotunda for two. Clothesline from him, then a front face lock. Then we get a hot tag, um, and a chair ends up in the ring. Rick Steiner and uh, Kevin Sullivan are brawling outside, uh, and Scott goes for a splash, but Rotunda gets his knees up and then suplexes him on a chair for a three count. So this is a yet another variation of Varsity Club versus uh, Steiner in some way. What do you think of this one? I really, really like this match a lot. Um, this is one of probably my favorite Steiner matches that I can think of. Uh, they, they've had, uh, I, I mean, I do think my opinion of them has been raised a little bit, uh, because in 1990 they had a, a good run 
uh, too, with uh, versus the Midnights in an October Pro match, and then uh, versus the Nasty Boys is a great match at Havoc '90. Uh, but this was one of my favorite matches of them. I thought Scott looked really good uh, for as young as he was. Uh, and he really, uh, once he got dumped to the outside, his back was nasty. They posed him. Sullivan, uh, when he threw the steps, that was a cool move. Uh, and one person that I must commend as well, too, uh, in addition to the Steiners, is Mike Rotunda. Because yeah. this is uh, a match I'll argue is the best he's looked. Uh, he hit the, uh, when Scott ducked under the one clothesline and then he immediately killed him with another clothesline. Yeah, I, like I thought that. that looked really good. Uh, and, and really Rotunda was very good in all this match. And then the finish of this match, uh, we've, we've seen some pretty bad finishes so far. And this one was kind of genius playing into the injury on Scott's bag with the suplex onto the chair for the pinfall. So I, I really, really like this match. I would argue for this match to be on like a, uh, if a yearbook was ever made of the 89, 1989 year, I'd argue for this match to be on there. Uh, I thought this was great, actually. My, my one note uh, here is that I've written best performance by Rotunda. Uh, I thought I think this is maybe Mike Rotunda's career match right here, which sounds ridiculous, but he was really good in this match. He yeah, everything he, was. he did looked great. He gave us about three or four different suplex variations. Um, psychology was good. Yeah, I really like this. I I, I agree with you, uh, Chad. I thought this was a good was a good match, and um, d- definitely the best Rotunda has looked for a while. Um, and Rick Stein looked pretty like he was coming back from this injury at this point, and he looked pretty good as well. Yeah. Um, the only thing I will say is that Kevin Sullivan in a ponytail is not a look that I would uh, recommend for him. And and one thing I will say too is is Rick has not been quite as stupid as uh, I think he can be at times, uh, and that may be another thing where. Uh, you know, honestly, some of my earliest mem- memories of the Steiners is the WWF years, mm. where I know he was really playing up kind of the dog face gremlin type moniker, where he was barking and running around and all this stuff. We're not seeing uh, on the super shows quite as, I mean, we did see some stupid stuff uh, in 88 with him doing that. We're not seeing quite as much of that now, and I hope that kind of continues because I definitely like him a lot better in this setting uh, than uh, than in the other. But th- this match really, uh, of all the shows we've done, this is a match that probably surprised me maybe the most because one is a match I never heard of. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I've, I've read a couple reviews that gave this match like three stars and stuff like that, which is a good match, but we've seen a bevy of matches that get three stars. And two, it's, it's, uh, it's people in this match that I've not really liked from Rotunda to Sullivan to uh, Rick Steiner. So, so three out of the four. And then we hadn't seen Scott, but he was very inexperienced. So for them, these four to have this type of match, this was my, uh, Probably my most pleasant surprise uh, in doing this show and going through these shows because I really, really like this match a lot. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, th- I thought it was uh, surprisingly good. And also a weird point for the Varsity Club here, whereas 
I get the impression it's reduced down to just being Rotunda and Sullivan again. Yeah. Like, well, Dan, Dan Spivey's gone now, right? Well, he's he is now tagging with Sid Vicious, and he's left right. Plastic yeah, plastic. he's he's uh, becoming the skyscraper. And yep. Who is the other Basti Club member? Steve Williams, and he's gone as well now. Yeah, Williams had already turned yeah. face too. So uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it's pretty much just them as a tag team, and I don't think they really hang around uh, much longer as the varsity club. So we're certainly when does uh, when does Rotunda start wearing like kind of sailor gear? <laughs> yeah, I know he was definitely the sailor by ninety. But there's um, a, there's also York Foundation to come. Well, that yeah, that's now that starts late nineteen ninety. Right. So okay. he he'll be the sailor first. Uh, this might actually be our last kind of look at the var- at the uh, varsity club. I mean, they've not been a bad stable, I don't think. You know, as a kind um, of upper mid card. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think they've been bad, but I don't think they've kind of been as good as their push was at times. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that, and, and I also think that Rotunda is better as a tag wrestler than being pushed as a TV champion. I right. do think that. Okay. So, so yeah, they're they're stuck in the King of the Hill Battle Royal at the uh, Great American Bash, and then I th- I think that'll be uh, it as far as them on a pay per view or clash. Uh, let me check real quickly. Yeah, by uh, by Halloween Havoc, uh, Rotunda's in the opener as a singles wrestler, so it'll be interesting if then he's already wearing the uh, captain hat. No. If I, if I was going to ask you, Chad, right, top ten stables of all time, would Varsity Club be a team that you consider, would, would, the, would you consider mm-hmm, their flat list, or yeah. they're not making it at all? I, I, I can't see them, uh, I mean, even, uh, honestly, like, even, uh, even them compared to maybe, like, Legacy, a stable in the WWE, or something like that, I, I can't see them even above them. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I kind of feel the same way. I just wanted to um, check to see what you uh, what you think. There. I mean, they're certainly behind, for starters, they'd be behind, you know, DX, Nation of Domination, probably, Dangerous Alliance, NWO, Four Horsemen, yeah. uh, Evolution. So that's, that's just... People I rattled off at the very top of my head. Any so. any, any iteration of the Heenan family, any iteration of uh, um, Jim Hart's uh, Jimmy Hart stable in Memphis. Yeah, yeah, Jimmy Hart stable in Memphis. Three birds. Uh, I mean, th- th- if, if you think about it, they're not family. even top twenty, yeah, are they? I mean, even if you consider, uh, even like even if you get to the Japanese stables too, but like Tenru and Chosu's army and stuff like that. Yeah. So. I, I don't see any way. No, you're 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 right. When you when you think about it, they're not they're not comparable. Um, so Jim Ross is Jim Ross is with Jim Cornette here, and um, <laughs> Jim Cornette kind of sucks up to the crowd a little bit here. He says the Army guys have had more broads than Michael Hayes could ever dream of, um, mm-hmm. which uh, amused me because I can imagine Michael Hayes laughing at that in the back. Um, and then he says that the Midnights um, would rather gnaw off their own arms 
um, than wake up next to some of the types of women that the Freebirds get off with. <laughs> so this was a quite a cool little uh, promo from Jim Cornette here, just reminding us that he's around. One of the things I couldn't help but notice uh, during this uh, promo is that Jim Cornette still looks really young. Like, how old, was he in his 20s still at this point? Like, he looks like a young man to me. Yeah, he was probably still in his 20s. Um, I'm going to look that up real quick. Yeah, he was born in 1961, so yeah, he'd have been uh, about 27, 28 here. Wow. And he does look it as well, which is kind of weird to think that, you know, he was younger than me at this point. Um, yeah, I never would have guessed that Cornette was younger than, like, my dad, but he is by a few months. It's kind of weird. Um, we get another one of these uh, official messages now from Governor Jim Martin. Uh, and he's proud of Fort Bragg. And he thanks uh, TBS for deciding to do the show there. So, <laughs> um, more kind of uh, of this patriotic stuff. Um, we get Sting now defending the TV title against Wild Bill Irwin. Irwin has a bull uh, whip uh, in the ring. And he keeps Sting at bay to start off with. He's cracking it against the mat. Uh, and that does look reasonably scary. I mean, I wouldn't get in the ring if somebody was cracking a bullwhip. Um, Sting uh, does manage to sneak in, though, and he hits a bulldog. And Jim Ross mentions on commentary that Lex Luger is refusing to appear because he's upset at the rankings. So I think Lex Luger is ran- uh, ranked second here behind Steamboat. And he's uh, upset, basically, that it's going to be like Funk versus Steamboat. Um, he he thinks as the U.S. champ that he would he should be number one, which uh, I was thinking you know that's a bit of a weird position for a face to be taking. Uh, and Jim Ross has mentioned it a couple of times now, so a little bit of foreshadowing there. Um, right. Bill Irwin is on top uh, now, um, and uh, Ross mentions on commentary that Sting has got issues with Terry Funk. He's he's upset at the uh, attack that Funk uh, gave Ric Flair. Sting comes back and hits a suplex. Uh, Bill Irwin gets a knee lift in, and Sting meets. Uh, Sting basically gets a Stinger splash uh, in now. Irwin slams him with uh, what Jim Ross calls a bear hug slam. Um, then he goes to get the whip, but eats a Stinger splash. Uh, Sting rolls him up for three. So, Chad, um, I mean, we Sting is in the middle of a kind of repush here, or a kind of a slow kind of bill where he's getting a lot of these kind of wins over semi-credible opponents in about three or four minutes. Yeah, they're they're kind of bringing him along. Uh, Bill Irwin's nobody that's ever really excited me. Uh, He's been okay in the stuff I've seen, but not very good at all. And on the spectrum of kind of the southern... Uh, guys with either bull rope or whip or whatever, he's on the lower end of that spectrum. Uh, this match was an okay showcase for Sting, and the crowd was hot. It again didn't go uh, didn't go very long at all. Uh, you know, Irwin in the finish looked really stupid because he had him down and then wasted a ton of time allowing Sting to splash him in the corner and roll him up. So. Uh, as far as a showcase for Sting, this was okay, but again, uh, with three minutes, not much more to it than that. So, I've seen it suggested by our uh, our friend uh, Matt uh, Petticord, 
Um, and that Sting, Sting's kind of TV title reign is a little bit like Goldberg's push, where he's just getting a lot of kind of small wins that keep the crowd wanting more, and doesn't really show. You know, they're never asking Sting to go longer than a couple of minutes here. What do you think about that? Mm, I, I can definitely see that up to this point, and then, uh, but by the, uh, I, I would assume he had a lot of kind of TV defenses that were pretty basic type matches, but uh, by the next show, he will be uh, deeply embedded into a feud that uh, has some risk involved with it, so that's kind of coming to the end. We get a video now of Scott Gator Hall, um, who uh, who has got a big old Magnum TA moustache here, and uh, he's um, kind of next to an alligator. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, wrangling an alligator. Um, no, now this this is something I blinked on. <laughs> what is Scott Gator Hall? Yeah, he being in the NWA at this time. Yeah, no, I always knew he was around with a mustache like this, or you know, uh, late '89. Doesn't he? I guess he didn't make the yearbook. Scott Hall, he's not. Well, that, I mean, I don't know if uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, he 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 seemed to go on a hiatus. I, I don't think he was around uh, for a lot of 1990. And then uh, he came back as like the diamond stud or whatever. But uh, I, I, I mean, I don't know what happened. But I, I, I don't think he was even around in 1990. Now, one of the things I noticed about this video is that is was the guy that he was wrestling in these clips Terry Funk? That's what I couldn't tell. I thought uh, he, I, didn't, I didn't recognize that. But it could was, have been. It was a guy with a beard, uh, and I like. He looked a little bit like Terry Funk, but he was wearing like an all-in-one, which uh, mm. Funk does doesn't typically do. Um, so I just had a question mark on that. If if it was, uh, that was a match where Scott Hall was getting a lot of offense. So um, anyway, uh, we now get a video package uh, of Jim Ross at uh, Ric Flair's home, and this is Ric Flair's first appearance on TV since uh, Wrestle War. He has a neck brace on. And then a, a kind of yellow Lakers training top. Um, and then a pair of shades to complete it. So an interesting look for Ric Flair here. Uh, in this bright yellow top, pair of shades, neck brace. He talks about... Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's actually a Los Angeles Lakers uh, NBA yeah, jacket. L- L.A. Lakers, right? I, I did have the note here. Yeah, I, yeah I, I feel L.A.'s Lakers like warm-up jacket. Now I I do know who the Lakers are because I used to have the, the uh, Super Nintendo game NBA Jam where I learned all the <laughs> I learned all the basketball teams. <laughs> I used to go to the New York Knicks on that, and uh, Patrick Ewing was my man. <laughs> okay, yeah, this would have been at the uh, kind of the tail end of their uh, '80s run with Magic Johnson and uh, James Worthy, uh, Kareem in the early '80s. Uh, so this was kind of the tail end of that run. I think they were do- they were like a reasonably dominant force in uh, basketball, right? Oh yeah, I mean they're they're, they're uh, definitely the biggest uh, franchise in the NBA, yeah. As far as overall, and at this point, 
in the uh, in the mid uh, re- really the early to late '80s, they were a, a, a dominant force. Like they won the NBA championship in 1988. So uh, so they were at, when this interview was happening, they were either the defending uh, NBA champions or the Pistons who won in 1989 had just uh, had just won. The championship. So the one thing I wanted to ask you is that, um, I mean, in the, uh, would it have been unusual for Ric Flair to be wearing a Lakers jacket here, given that he's from North Carolina? Like, would it be expected for somebody from the Carolinas to support a, a local team rather than rather than the Lakers? Like, how does that work? Um, I mean, it's. And and actually, I'm just I'm looking at the dates now. So the dates of the NBA Finals were uh, June 6th to the 13th. So actually, probably the uh, the day this interview, yeah. So they did say this was the day before. So this was the night of uh, when this interview took place. Was the night of Game Four, where the Lakers actually lost to the Detroit Pistons right. uh, in the NBA Finals. Um, but uh, but. It, I mean, it would. It's kind of strange that he's not wearing a Charlotte Hornets jacket. But uh, I mean, with it being the Lakers, with the Lakers being the biggest franchise, I mean, there's people that live around me that have never, you know, never lived in Los Angeles, hmm. never been to a Lakers games that are Lakers fans. Right. Okay. So, so I mean, if it was another kind of more obscure team, like a, you know, like if he was wearing a Utah Jazz jacket, it'd be like, well, well that's kind of strange. But as far as the Lakers or uh, in the in the uh, NFL, a Dallas Cowboy, or in the Major League Baseball, a New York Yankees, there's always going to be kind of fans like that sprinkled around uh, in every area. And the Lakers at this time had Magic Johnson, who, uh, you know, he was he's one of the best players of all time and was so charismatic, so, so not a surprise. So, I mean, here in the UK, it's not unusual for somebody to be, you know, from London, for example, and support Manchester United, um, who are, you know, one of the big teams uh, in, in football. But there, there also tends to be, like, another fan who kind of supports their local club, who, who tends to call the fans who just support big teams as being uh, glory fans, you know, they're, they're just in it for the glory, they're not like true fans type thing. Is Do, do, do you guys have that concept? In yeah, the... I, I agree with that. It's kind of like a front-runner type fan. Um, yeah. Right, they're like, uh, again, like in basketball, they support the Lakers, in football, they support the Cowboys. Yeah. You know, there's no geographical reason for who they cheer. So, all right. Um, Flair is talking about life after wrestling as a possibility here. Um, I wish he'd start talking about that now, uh, in 2013. But <laughs> here in 1989, he's talking about the possibility of life after wrestling. Um, he he says that his left arm is numb, uh, and this is the worst injury he's ever had, worse than the plane crash. And he's in full-on Starcade 83 mode here. He's got that kind of lower voice. Um, this is like 100% face flare, subdued. Uh, Ross mentions the, the 30 day defense rule, uh, which has been waived uh, for the time being uh, in view of this injury. 
Flair says that he's got another 30 days and he's going to be making an announcement on July the 1st about uh, what's going to happen, basically. Um, and he tells Terry Funk not to sleep at night because, uh, you know, uh, of what he's done to him. What do you think of this? Uh, so this is a very different Ric Flair now from the last time we saw him goading Ricky Steamboat. What do you think? I, I like this kind of low-key, uh, on-locale type interview. I thought this was uh, a great way to sell his injuries uh, and build up his upcoming return. So this, I thought, as an overall setup for his angle with Bonk was really, really well done. And this is a type of interview you don't really hear from Flair very much. No. Uh, as far as a kind of low-key babyface promo. Um, so this was one of the better ones in that regard that I could think of from his career, and I really enjoyed hearing this side of Flair. I mean, kind of contemplative. I, I've mentioned it a few times about this, you know, the idea that you have the Minnesota Flair and the and the Charlotte Flair, um, where where, uh, where where you have, you know, you've got Slick Rick as one character, and you've got this this guy that we're seeing here as another character. If you think about it, he's exactly like this in Starkid '83. And he's exactly like this around the time of Starcade 93 as well. I mean, it's, it, it, he's got two, you know, this is a definitely a version of himself that he's got. Um, but what I like is, is that this character is buried in the other character. And also, the Slick Rick character is still somewhere in there as well. Does that make sense? Right. Um, we got the final of the tag uh, title, t title, title tournament now. Uh, with the Fabulous Freebirds versus uh, the Midnight Express. Just as things are starting out here, Paulie dangerously sneaks in and he nails Cornette out cold um, outside the ring with a loaded racket. And then they find this uh, racket has been loaded with a chain and a horseshoe. <laughs> um, so Cornette is uh, carried out um, by a bunch of... Uh, by the... the, the Dynamic dudes, and I think those jobbers who we saw earlier, was it Mike Justice and George South, I guess, uh, they carry him out. Um, so, Jim Cornette did mention in that promo earlier that he's going to be there to make sure that Terry Gordy isn't a factor in this match. Obviously, now that he's been nailed, this puts the Midnight Express at a disadvantage. Also, because he's seen as being like the tactician for that outfit as well. Right. Uh, we get a headlock by Hayes on Lane, um, who uh, get, then gets an arm drag in and a scoop slam. We get the drop, the drop toe hold by Lane um, on Garvin. Then we get an elbow drop by Eaton in quite a slick uh, kind of double team segment for the Midnights. Inzaguri by uh, Lane, Savat kick, elbow drop, uh, no, an elbow smash uh, then. Eaton wants Garvin to tag uh, Hayes in. And we get a slam by uh, Garvin. And then again, Hayes dumps uh, Eaton outside. Um, reverse knife edge. Dumps Eaton again. Uh, then he struts and poses. Eaton takes uh, a third tumble, face first into the railings. So he's hit those railings three times now from the outside. Um, and each one, I think, is more severe than the last. So this is quite a good face in peril uh, segment from Eaton here. Uh, we get a snapmare by uh, Garvin. Reverse chin lock, and the crowd is pretty hot. We get a hot tag um, to Lane, who comes in with kicks, but then he eats the turnbuckle. 
Hayes comes in. Lane gets a DDT in, uh, which is a surprise because that's, that's Hayes' move. Um, and then Eaton gets a, a double noggin knocker. Uh, double flapjack on Garvin uh, for two. Uh, Gordy sneaks in, power bombs Eaton. Garvin uh, covers. And uh, the fabulous Freebirds are your winners and new world tag team champions. Thoughts, Chad? Um, in reading your description, I think you may have liked this more than I did. Uh, I was pretty disappointed by this. I thought uh, it was kind of aimless. Uh, Eaton going into the guardrail and the post looked mm. pretty good. But then they followed that up with chin locks and stuff like that. So there wasn't a whole lot of uh, where you had kind of the continuous work on the back of Steiner in the previous tag. You didn't have much of that here. Uh, and uh, I did like the payback spot with Elaine, DDT, and Hayes. But, uh, but again, the finish was kind of a little weird with Gordy constantly coming on the apron and then, uh, the ref getting distracted and he ends up power bombing Eaton for the win. So I, I thought this was pretty disappointing overall. Yeah, and I think the booking is a little bit strained. Like, what's the point of this Fabulous Freebirds title win here? Like, it doesn't seem to be putting the world titles. I don't know. They, they don't feel like they should be the world champions to me. Coming like right. coming out of the show, um, especially when the Row Warriors are knocking around and like the free the the Midnight's definitely seem like the better team as well. It's kind of a bit strange. Um, I thought I thought this was a good match, but no, nothing uh, nothing spectacular. Um, the be- the best bit for me I I thought was the bumps that Eaton took coming up, you know coming out onto those railings. Um, although, like you said, it was a little bit aimless. And I I do think now that we're past the point where Jimmy Garvin is any good as a worker. I think that both of us have been a little bit higher on him, kind of mid-80s, than most people are. That's the impression I get. Um, but he's lost it by this point. Yeah. Through that. Um, yeah, the, see, what I would have done is really given the Midnight Express a world title win here and then slowly turn them heel somehow. Yeah, that'd been nice to see. Um, anyway, uh, so that's the end of the uh, title tournament. Um, and our next match is the main event. It's Terry Funk versus Ricky Steamboat. There's no music for Funk. Uh, and no wife or kid for Steamboat tonight. We get some. Uh, st- no, the the wife is there. Oh, oh, I, where was she? I didn't. I didn't. They see cut it. to her right before um, the match starts. They they show her in the crowd, like she didn't walk out with him. Right, but, but she was uh, there. She, yeah, she was there uh, in the crowd. So we get some stiff chops from Funk to start with, uh, and then Steamer answers with uh, some of his own. Funk bails. Uh, we get a drop kick uh, from Steamboat. Funk comes back with uh, some uh, jabs, and uh, Jim Ross mentions that he's a southpaw, so he leads with his left a lot of the time. Um, he takes it outside. Uh, then he comes back in, and uh, Funk hits four to five uh, punches and a neck breaker. Uh, he focuses uh, attacks on the back of Steamer's neck uh, for the next few minutes um, before Funk. Uh, eats an Irish whip uh, and he goes into the turnbuckle and kind of does a flare flip type move over to the outside. Um, Steamboat um, gets on 
the top rope and he stands there for what seems like an age uh, before hitting a big chop uh, from the top over to the outside. Then, in a very strange spot, he carries Funk all the way around the ring. 360 degrees, walks right around the perimeter of the ring uh, before slamming him on the floor. Um, which Did the camera catch that? I, I seem to miss the actual slam on the floor after all of that. Yeah, he did uh, slam him onto the floor uh, after he walked him around. Steamer, uh, uh, they get back in the ring and then Steamboat dumps uh, Funk back outside. Um, then he catches a boot uh, coming uh, coming into the turnbuckle. Funk is back on top with punches and chops. He hits a pile driver, uh, which gets two, uh, and it's quite a big kind of near fall because everybody assumes that you know, pile drivers is finisher here, so that should be the three. We get big chops by Steamboat to come back. A ref bump now, uh, and the action goes outside, where we get a running pile driver on the floor from uh, Terry Funk, uh, which is pretty sick. Um, Nick Patrick is uh, kind of up, but he's still dazed. Funk gives Steamboat a suplex back in. Uh, he drags the ref over. We get one, two, uh, no, it's still not a three count, uh, even after all that punishment. Funk gives Steamboat 12 jabs uh, to the face now. and goes up top for a splash. Steamboat gets his knees up, and then he gets a gut punch in, and then again. And then uh, a move I'm calling a stomach breaker. We get a chop uh, from the top, another Savak kick. Uh, and Funk now... Is kind of lands on the announce table and he grabs a, a mic and nail steamer with it for an instant DQ. Then uh, Lex Luger comes out, uh, so Funk looks like he's going to give a kind of um, post-match beatdown here, but Lex Luger comes out and Funk bails. And uh, we'll pause there for thoughts on this match. So Chad. I, d I thought it was a, a good match, really, really good match. Uh, Funk looked, I thought, really good in this match. He had very loopy uh, roundhouse punches that connected, uh, and some really uh, nasty chops from Funk that really thudded across Steamboat. Steamboat, for his credit, uh, chopped back and engaged with Funk, giving him some exchanges. And when Funk took over on control with like the pile drivers and the pile driver on the floor, Steamboat sold that really well. I did not like the uh, the finish. I thought that was a cheap finish, uh, kind of a cop out type finish, and uh, one that didn't really make Funk look very uh, effective going into a NWA World Championship match coming up at the Bash. No, I, I was a little bit confused by the, the booking here because this was billed as like a number one contenders match, but Funk loses him. So yeah, I mean he, he's he's the number ten contender currently, and he loses this match by DQ. So I don't know how they could really justify uh, unless they did something in the TV to build it up. I don't know how they could justify that he would leapfrog. Uh, you know, since the whole feud was based off the fact that Flair told him he needed to. Uh, rise up the ranks like everyone else. I I actually thought, I must admit, I thought this match was disappointing, considering who was involved here. Um, and, you know, they had 13 minutes, and I think you can have a really good match in um, 
13 minutes. I'm not saying that the, this match wasn't good. It was good. But it's still not as good as I would have hoped. Um, the finish hurts it, I think. And I don't, I don't know, but there's something... Um, Steamboat didn't really bring it too much in this match, I didn't think. Like, he, what, apart from a few chops, what does he actually do in this match? He, I mean, yeah, he he doesn't have a lot of his kind of traditional uh, offense as much. Um, and I mean, you do get the chop onto the floor, but there's not many like high cross bodies or even drop kicks and stuff. He does. He actually, uh, when he does drop kick Funk, the first one hits him well, mm. but then on the second one, he kind of whiffs on it. This was early on in the match. He kind of whiffs on the second drop kick and. Like, barely grazes Funk, and Funk still takes a, like, big bump to the floor over it, so that looked kind of bad, too. Yeah, and it, I think, uh, like, we don't get the arm drag. Like, m my feeling is, okay, is that, say if uh, Steamboat was kind of, like, the peak of his overness in, like, April, May sort of time, when he was, have, you know, doing the trilogy, it, it feels like the kind of, some of the, some of the sheen has come off a bit now, like, a month later for him. Right. Um, so, yeah, I did think that Funk's um, offense was very focused. I liked the idea that everything was around the kind of upper neck, and then he hit pile drivers on it, and suplex, like, very good focus on, on the offense. Um, but it didn't... I Like, for once, I didn't think Steamboat did a very good job of sustained selling. Like he was up pretty quickly from the first pile driver, um, and he like he didn't feel like he'd like after he takes the running pile driver on the floor, which would have killed most people. He's still kind of up and running. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, he does. He does get up and kind of get back into the uh, ring fairly quickly. Off that, it would have been nice if they just sort of teased the count out. Or, I mean, honestly, with the finish they had, I would have made that the finish actually. Yeah. Uh, with the finish they did, I would I would have had Steamboat counted out right there. He kind of valiantly gets up, and then you could have Funk, uh, you know, hit him with the microphone after the match and do everything that uh, do everything that they did afterwards. Yeah, and it also would have really helped to put over the idea of Funk's pile driver as being like a game changer. Right, uh, right. I mean, yeah, this was that's a good point because this was a move that. He hit Flair with it on the uh, table, and, you know, Flair's been out for a month, still has a neck brace and stuff like that, and Steamboat is kind of going back into the ring and wandering in uh, less than 20 seconds after it happens, almost. I will say this, though. How many times have you seen a running pile driver? I thought that was really cool. <laughs> uh, I mean, he sort of, like, does... It's essentially like he backs up and does kind of like a moonwalk and then just drops him. Hmm. Uh, but and yeah, I, I really did like Funk in this match. So my, I mean, it, 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 don't get me wrong, it was a good match, but it could have been a classic, and I don't think it's a classic. Right, I agree with that. Um, so there is a little bit of afters here because Lex Luger um, now uh, picks up the mic, and he says he's had some problems with his ego recently, and then he kind of goes to help Steamboat up. And then nails Steamboat with the with the mic, so holy he heel turn, Batman. Um, 
he wants to be number one contender. He grabs a chair, nails a steamboat with it, gets him in the torture rack, dumps him on the floor, and then he says, there lays your number one contender. Sting comes out, and he's basically here to help Steamboat, who's uh, on the floor. A heel turn for Dex Luger here. So, if you're keeping count, this is the second time we've seen Luger turn now. Yeah, and, that, and I mean, this was uh, executed well. And I did think the line of there's your number one contender was awesome uh, in the delivery of it. Uh, but, uh, you know, he, he turns heel here, and as we'll see soon enough, he'll turn right back face uh, rather quickly. So uh, we're kind of starting to see some indications of what will kind of haunt Luger's career um, already. Now, do you prefer him as a heel or a face? Oh, I don't know. I think I... Uh, I think I prefer him as a face, actually. Uh, I, I, he he does seem like someone that it is. He, you know, most people, I usually outright prefer him as one or the other. He does actually seem like someone where it's kind of tough to tell whether I'd prefer him as a heel or face. I mean, I do think his true persona, like his true actual legit personality, more favors a heel. Yeah. Uh, but at, at, when I think about like his best matches, I keep coming back to when he was a face is his best match. So I don't, I, I kind of am in between on that. Now, what do you think about the timing of this heel turn here? Because it's, um, he'd been kind of, he just won the US belt back. And he'd right. kind of been building quite nicely there in that role, as a as a face, in a yeah. oddly as a like a parallel to Sting, slightly higher up the card. I mean, I don't know if they were uh, thinking long term. That uh, I mean, I w I would assume they kind of knew what Funk's arc would be at this point, and when he'd kind of be going back, and then the same with Muda. Yeah, uh, they knew that you know he was kind of in for a short short term, so I don't know if maybe they did this to sort of try to start building Luger up as a long term uh, foe for both Sting and Flair, like maybe almost a year down the road, yeah, and then just change their mind. Uh, so if if they were going for that, knowing that Funk would probably be finishing up in November, I think they should have known that by now. And uh, that Muda would be going back to Japan. I don't have a problem with that because after those two guys, uh, right now it starts to get kind of suspect with the uh, with the heel side of things. Mm. Uh, but uh, so I mean, maybe maybe they thought that way. I don't know why they got cold feet and turned him again. But, uh, but I also think that you you got to consider like changes of booking team and thing. I I think if you're a booker, right? And you, you're faced with the roster, and you've got like you know I've got this many top faces, this many top heels, and Lex Luger's there as part of your roster. He looks like the most turnable guy, like because of, because it's difficult to say he's definitely a face or he's definitely a heel. He's always like got to be top one or two guy to consider to turn, right? Right, right. He he does seem like somebody that you can easily flip. And not have to totally kind of revamp a lot of aspects of his character. 
yeah. uh, in order to turn him. So anyway, uh, so they're teasing a bit of Luger versus a uh, steamboat now. Is this something that we we're going to see soon? Yes, uh, they'll have a match at our next show. So, so I, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I am looking forward to him. So, <laughs> so we go back to Jim Ross now, who is absolutely drenched in sweat. He looks like yeah. the ho- he basically looks like the hottest man in the world, and he's with um, Lieutenant Commander. Uh, Carl Steiner. Yeah. Uh, who's the same guy from the opening. Who's the same guy from earlier. And uh, Steiner, just like everybody else, thanks TBS for this uh, patriotism and for honouring the army with this show. Um, and uh, what happens now? There's a there's a kind of um, big cake there, and the uh-huh. army is kind of singing songs in the background. And Steiner uh, presents Ross with a trophy of like a kind of army like a soldier basically um and now we have uh kind of this army band singing happy birthday to the US army um so when they have to sing the person's name they say dear the army um <laughs> uh, and then we get a rendition of god bless the USA and every single one of these guys is absolutely sweating their asses off. I mean that they they these guys couldn't look hotter than they are. Um, so and quite a boring end to this uh, to this card, Chad. Um, yeah, this was kind of in the uh, uh, sort of reminded me uh, about the Saturday Night Main Event type thing. Uh, where you sort of have the main angles and parts of the show and then come back just sort of for a wrapping up segment. Uh, so this was nothing to this at all. Yeah, and uh, like for me, uh, not really a US patriot in any way, a uh, little bit of overkill on this show. Yeah, uh, it did seem they were kind of, um, I mean that was definitely a theme they wanted to go towards. Uh, which we've we've seen them sort of sprinkle in different themes for most of their class shows, like uh, which is one thing that I will commend them on because like the uh, the the Raging Cajun New Orleans show had JYD's entrance and some kind of New Orleans flavor. Uh, this had a patriotic flavor, and then even in Chattanooga they showed a lot of uh, scenes from Lookout Mountain and stuff like that. So you are getting kind of different little themes for the shows, uh, but this was a, definitely over the top. So what do we think about this as an overall card? I mean, there's a lot of shit on here. There's a lot of like what 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 we typically describe as wrestle crap, you know, ding dong. Yeah. Right. Ranger Ross versus Terrorist, Norman the Lunatic, you know. Um, it's definitely not one of the best cards we've seen. But there's some good stuff buried in there as well. Yeah, I think this is kind of the beginning of what will be a uh, reoccurring theme for a lot of these shows from this point to uh, the end of 1991, where, uh, and even a little bit into 1992, uh, this is kind of the WCW standby in that you had some good wrestling, uh, some kind of stupid booking, mm. and then a lot of other, like you said, wrestle crap type stuff. Uh, so kind of a combination of good and bad throughout the card. Uh, 
uh, you'll you'll see this, I think, a lot. Yeah. Um. Well, the 1990 is notorious for it, of course. Um. Right. So, what are we thinking for match of the night? Is there any question that it's uh? There are obviously two different contenders here. Yeah, two two contenders. Um, and uh, this might sound crazy to some, but I'm I'm actually have one go with the Steiners versus the Varsity Club. I'd I'd probably have the match ranked uh, about the same star rating wise. Mm-hmm. But the reason I was so uh, surprised by how good that tag match was, I thought the finish was definitely a lot better than the main event. Uh, so I am won't go with that just based off of what I just said. Um, uh, it feels weird to me to put that match above the Funk Steamboat. Uh, so I'm not gonna. I'm gonna stick with Funk Steamboat, even though I did like that match um, as well. Um, if you factor in the Luger heel turn as well as part of that well, kind of yeah. Now I did. I know. Um, on the last show, we talked about this, and I, when I re-listened to that, I don't think I was kind of clear enough on my stance on that. So, uh, like, what, what, if I do take into account the post-match with that, it's I mainly take into account my rating for that if it's the same individuals. Right, okay. Uh, if you understand that. So, like, if, if Steamboat and Funk would have still been fighting and uh, would have fought, you know, if something would have happened with them, mm. I kind of take that into account, but with Luger coming back and sort of being a different feud, uh, you have a different feud shift, I don't, I, I sort of separate that, and that's the same with the uh, with the Flair versus Steamboat and then the Flair versus Funk stuff. So if you uh, get, where, go ahead. If you get like a post-match beatdown from the losing heel, for example, that counts as part of the match segment. If somebody else comes in and you get a different kind of beatdown, that doesn't count. Right, right. That's kind of the little caveat I wanted to throw in. That's what I tried to explain uh, last time, but I know it wasn't very clear on that. Uh, so I'll explain that, that there. That makes sense. I mean, but even if you take that Luger stuff out, I'm, I still think, you know, I'm running pile driver. Um, Stiff chops. I'm, I'm giving it to Funk Steamboat. Um, yeah, I, pr- I probably. Uh, I mean, I'll probably watch that Varsity Club and Steiner Brothers match before our Decade End shows just to see if uh, some of the glaze of my surprise from it is worn off. Hmm. Uh, but I mean, right now, probably star rating wise, I would have both at a uh, like three and three quarters. I know Meltzer. It does sound like in his review he rated the uh, overall segment because he said he'd give it like four and a quarter for the whole package. Mm-hmm. Well, what what I'd say is is that the Funk Steamboat is a case where you have high expectations and it doesn't quite live up to it. Whereas the Varsity right. Club Steiners, you don't really have high expectations going in and it surprises right. you in being a good match. So even taking all that into account, I'm still going to go with um, Funk Steamboat. MVP for you, Chad. Uh, my, now, my MVP, I am going to go with Terry Funk. Um, I thought he was great in that match with his punches, with his different pile drivers, uh, bumping crazy like Terry Funk can. Uh, definitely got over his kind of wild man persona in the best ways here. And I'm going to go with, uh, so I'm flipping things up a bit, I'm going to go with Mike Rotunda. 
um, on the basis that that may well be the best we will ever see him. Um, he uh, he gave a lesson in suplexes in that match, uh, and I'm a mark for suplexes, and I make no uh, <laughs> I make no um, secret of that fact. So, but everything else he look, did look great in that match as well, including that right. clothesline spot that you mentioned. So, um, Mike Rotunda for me. So, an embarrassment of riches for the Billy Graham Award. Who are you going to go? Yeah, with? this is uh this is tough because uh, I mean, I mean, I really did not think the Freebirds did a good showing for themselves here, uh, as far as their push compared to their performance. But uh, with as much other crap that's on this show, I, I mean, I think you have to go with. I mean, to me, I'm going with the Ding Dongs. They may have not been uh, as bad in the ring as some of the other stuff we saw, but just their whole overall gimmick is is so disastrous. I can't see. I, I mean, I just I, most of the stuff, even like somebody like Norman the Lunatic, I can see how conception wise that might be something you want to throw out there. I I cannot see how anybody could not see this with the ding dongs and not think it was the dumbest thing they ever heard. Uh, can, can I ask? Uh, are you going to pick both the ding dongs, or did one of them uh, was one of them worse? Like it, now, see, I, I know you were talking about the distinct. I, honestly, I was so distracted by the bell <laughs> that I that I really during my notes in the match I couldn't really distinguish them or couldn't distinguish them much. So so I will just pick them both because uh, both gimmicks are. Uh, but my I mean, as a gimmick overall, that's the reason I'm picking them. My my perception was that the, uh, the dong was the one doing like the arm drags and suplexes and things, and Ding was the guy who came off the top rope. Okay, I wonder if that was uh, which one that was, Jim Evans or Richard Sartan. I don't know. Yeah, but I was going on what Jim Ross was saying, and I I got the impression that he kept on getting confused as well. So it's it's not okay. like. Um, I'm gonna. See, it feels harsh to go for the terrorist, but I do kind of like the little run that Jack Victory's got going there with various awful gimmicks. Uh, Jimmy Garvin <laughs> is definitely a contender, I think. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't very good. I also, do, I also don't think either or either of the dynamic dudes are very good in their match. Um, so, all in all, um, uh. I'm gonna go with. Um, I I honestly thought the Ding Dongs were not the worst performers on the show, despite right. their terrible gimmick. So I'm gonna have to go with somebody else. I <laughs> I'm gonna go with the terrorists. I think. Um, okay. Just uh, just to keep that little blackmailer run going. <laughs> so um, next show is Great American Bash '89, right? Yeah, next show is Great American Bash 89, which, uh, you know, Meltzer needs to hold on to his hat with making a top 10 pay-per-view list, uh, because uh, little did he know that the next show would be uh, what's still considered one of the best pay-per-views of all time, so I'm really interested to see if that mm. holds up. Now, I, I remember watching that match uh, to start off with and being, uh, being pumped, so... Um, one, the first time I, I saw it, so I'd, I'd be interested to see if it holds up. It's still right. talked about as being an all-time great. And uh, we'll um, hold off on doing comments, because I only posted the 
second part of the Wrestle War 89 show, kind of early hours of the morning, late last night. Um, so people really haven't had a, list, a chance to listen to that yet. Um, so I think we'll just do it like a big roundup on Flare Steamboat Trilogy stuff, Clash 6, Wrestle War, next time out. Okay? Sounds good. All right, well, I look forward to it. And, uh, all right, see you, Park. See you next week. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody. <laughs>